Well, good morning. It's such a joy for me to have this opportunity to uh, be with you for a few moments this morning. As Ray said, my family have been a part of Parkview for a number of years now, and we have been so blessed to be a part of Parkview. So it's an honor for me to have a chance to share a few thoughts with you this morning. So thank you. There's a picture coming up here. That's my happy place, I call it. That's my personal, peaceful paradise. I love this place, except for the fact that I've never been there. <laughs> but I just go there I, in my mind. And I don't know if you're like me, but when life gets stressful and the pressures weigh in, and at times when I just need to get away and there's no place to go, this is where I go in my mind. And I just imagine myself laying back in this hammock, swaying gently back and forth in the breeze, the shade of the palm tree draped over me, the sound of the waves as they gently ripple up on the shore, the smell of the sea, and I just say, ah, can you picture it? And maybe for you the place is different, but I hope you have a place like that that you can go to in your mind when life's stressful where you can just calm down for a moment and imagine yourself at peace and relax. And so I want you for just a moment to picture that place. And I want you to hear these words of Paul the Apostle. He says, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of compassion and the God of all comfort. I love that. What a description of God. The Father of compassion and the God of all comfort. It gives me that same feeling, that sense of ah, where I can just relax. Jesus said, Come to me, all who are weary and heavy burdened, and I will give you rest. For I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Ah, I love that. Where's my hammock? You know, it takes me back. It's that same sort of feeling. The God of all comfort. Rest for our souls. Where do I sign up, you know? It sounds so wonderful, but there's just one problem with my little fantasy. I don't know if you caught it, but I didn't quote Jesus quite right. What he actually said was this, Come to me, all who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, he says, and my burden is light. A yoke? Really? You know what a yoke is? This is what a yoke is. It's this huge beam that you weigh down on the back of two oxen as you strap them together, and you hook a plow behind them to dig through the earth, and they trudge along just about like this. That's what a yoke is. Where's the rest for my soul in that? You know, that image is very strikingly similar to another image. Jesus says, Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. There's a paradox in following Jesus Christ. Rest for my soul involves taking up a cross. It involves being yoked 
And actually, if we go back to what Paul said in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, he says, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of compassion and the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our troubles so that we can comfort one another with the comfort we ourselves have received from God. God's comfort is not about me feeling comfortable. It's not about that, as much as I want it to be, about that hammock in the shade under the sun. In fact, Paul goes on in a few uh, sentences later, and he tells us what God's comfort actually gives us. He says it gives us patient endurance of the same sufferings Christ suffers. God's comfort gives me what I need to endure to get through the tough problems of life. And it gives me what I need so that I can serve others. We are comforted so that we can comfort one another. Paul wrote later in the same letter that we are to be ambassadors of Christ as though Christ is making his appeal through us. And so in this context, it's as though Paul is saying, we are God's comforters. Paul wrote in the letter to the Galatian church, bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. He uses a word there that we don't often associate with Jesus' teaching, the word law. He says it's the law of Christ that we bear each other's burdens. Not just a good idea, not just a helpful suggestion, but it's the law of Christ that we be a burden-bearing fellowship. So that's what I want us to explore for just a few minutes together this morning. Will you pray with me? Gracious Father, we thank you for time together to open your word to seek your wisdom and your guidance in our lives. And so I pray, Father, that your spirit would speak to us. Take the words that I've prepared, Father, and I pray that you would correct any that are wrong and that you would speak to us and have us hear you. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, the word fellowship in this phrase, burden-bearing fellowship, is kind of a problematic word. Uh, It's a word that seems to have lost its meaning. I grew up in a church in the South, and we had a large building that was right next to the sanctuary building and in that building we had this large room that we called the fellowship hall any of you grow up with the fellowship hall it was basically a big room where we gathered together once in a while to eat some really good meals we ate there and the word fellowship has come to basically mean that gathering together to share a meal to eat to drink together to just hang out together that's fellowshipping but that's not the concept of fellowship in the scriptures The Greek word in the New Testament that's used for this concept is koinonia. You've probably heard it before. And it's translated in so many different ways, but the basic heart of it is togetherness, Christian fellowship. It means so much more than just hanging out together or sharing a meal together or even gathering together here to worship on Sunday mornings. Dietrich Bonhoeffer was a man who was born in the early 1900s in Germany. And he became a pastor during the rise of Hitler. And he began to stand against all that the Nazi regime was doing. And so he got targeted by the Gestapo and had to flee for his life. And he came to America and he started teaching in New York City. But as he began to hear more and more about what was going on back in Germany, he changed his mind and decided that he needed to return. And he wrote about this decision. He said these words, I've come to the conclusion that I made a mistake in coming to America. I shall have no right to take part in the restoration of Christian life in Germany after the war unless I share the trials of this time with my people. He returned to be in fellowship with other followers of Jesus in Germany. And as a result, he was arrested. He was imprisoned in a concentration camp. And before the end of the war, 
he was martyred for his faithfulness. From his experiences living in persecution and in prison, he wrote a number of wonderful uh, things that have been left behind for us. One was a book that's entitled Life Together, and it's a book about Christian fellowship. And in this book, he writes these words. The believer feels no shame when he yearns for the physical presence of other Christians. The believer lauds the Creator, the Redeemer, God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit for the bodily presence of a brother. The prisoner, the sick person, the Christian in exile sees in the companionship of a fellow Christian a physical sign of the gracious presence of the triune God. Visitor and visited in loneliness recognize in each other the Christ who is present in the body. They receive and meet each other as one meets the Lord in reverence, humility, and joy. But if there is so much blessing and joy, he says, even in the single encounter of brother with brother or sister with sister, how inexhaustible are the riches that open up for those who by God's will are privileged to live in the daily fellowship of life with other Christians. We have that opportunity. We have that privilege to live in daily fellowship without persecution. But you know, it's not always easy in this culture. When my wife and I first... We actually met at Wheaton College years and years ago, and then we moved away to Oregon, where she's from. But when we moved back to the Chicago area about 20 years ago, she took a job in Oak Brook, and we found a place to live in Naperville, and I was going to school at Wheaton. And we found a church to worship with in Carroll Stream. And our life was kind of pulled in all directions. And we found that it was difficult to figure out who's the community that we're living life with, who are the people that we walk daily with. And we felt disconnected. You may know what that feels like, to be pulled this direction and that direction. And we began to long for the experience of worshiping together with the people that we live life with. Just last week, actually week before last, uh, I happened to be up at Honey Rock Camp. Any of you know Honey Rock Camp? Feel Great place. Honey Rock Camp is associated with Wheaton College. And we took 220 of our incoming freshmen and about 30 faculty, and we went up to the north woods of Wisconsin for few days up together, and it was wonderful. And I was chatting with one of my friends who I teach with, uh, his name's Johan, and he was telling me about his childhood growing up in a small village in South Africa where he's from. And he said that it was a small village and the neighbors were all close and people lived life together. And on Sunday morning, people would come out of their homes singing, and they would start moving from house to house, and people would come out of their homes and they would gather slowly into this grand procession of people singing and dancing as they made their way through the streets to their place of worship. Doesn't that just sound great? Now, I live just across the field from Pastor Ray. I can see his house from my house, and I couldn't help but think, I wonder what that looked like, Pastor Ray coming out of his house, (laughs) singing and dancing, moving from neighbor to neighbor, my family coming out as we gather, raising our hands, singing, walking through the streets of Wheaton and Glenelg and making our way to Parkview. I just think that would be great. Now, I know that's not part of our culture, but I'd love that. Wouldn't that be great? Bonhoeffer challenges us to think about a life of daily fellowship with each other, not just gathering together once a week for worship, a fellowship in which we actually live our lives together, committed to each other in deep companionship. I want to talk about something for just a minute that's a little bit difficult to talk about. There was a movie that came out in 2004 titled Hotel Rwanda. If you haven't seen it, it's a powerful movie. It's worth watching, but it's very difficult to watch. It's a movie that tells the story of the unimaginable atrocities 
that took place in the spring of 1994 when Rwandans who identified themselves as Tutsis set out to exterminate all Rwandans who were identified as Hutus. Now, this division between Tutsi and Hutu was actually not a division that arose out of an ancient African tribal story. If it were, then maybe we could sort of dismiss it and say, you know, that's part of something that's part of a culture that's very different than ours, a different experience than we know, and so that doesn't really apply to us. Actually, it arose out of a shameful part of European history. You see, the story of Rwanda is a story of European countries that in the late 1800s met together and in a conference divided up all of Africa as though it were theirs, dividing people groups one from another and assigning names to those people groups. And it's a story of division in the country of Rwanda that Rwandas began to believe about themselves. And over generations, they began to own an identity that took root in them. An identity that ultimately became more important than their identity as Christians. Because you see, Rwanda was a Christian nation. It was a nation that in the 1990s was held up as a model of what an African Christian nation looks like. This man, Emmanuel Katongale, is a Rwandan who now lives in North Carolina. He teaches at Duke Divinity School, and he co-directs the Center for Reconciliation. And he writes about all of this in a book entitled Mirror to the Church. He writes that Rwanda had become the most Christianized country in all of Africa. But on Easter week, if you can imagine it, on Easter week 1994, it became the site of its worst genocide. He writes these words. If Christians in Rwanda had been slaughtered by non-Christians, it would have been tragic, but perhaps easier to comprehend. However, Christians killed other Christians, often in the same churches where they had worshipped together. Brothers and sisters who had sung together the day before were suddenly mortal enemies. In a number of instances throughout Rwanda, churches became the slaughterhouses. Never before have Christians killed one another in the very spaces where they had worshipped together for generations. It's hard to imagine. His conclusion? Christianity made little difference in Rwanda. He calls it an inconsequential Christianity. This is what he says must serve as a mirror to the church, that Rwanda needs to be held up and we all and Christians throughout the world need to look at Rwanda and ask ourselves this question. What difference does our Christian make, our Christian faith make in our relationships with one another? With whom do I truly belong? Where is my fellowship? It's hard to read these words that he writes, but he says, the blood of tribalism flowed deeper than the waters of baptism. The night before Jesus was crucified, he prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane. You remember the story. And as he prayed, he prayed for himself and he prayed for his disciples. But then he also prayed for all who would ever believe in him because of their work. And that's all of us. He was praying for us. He said, I pray that all of them may be one, Father, as we are one, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The outcome of our t togetherness in Christian fellowship is a testimony to the world that Jesus is who he said he is, that he is Lord, that he is the Son of God. Now, the genocide of Rwanda is, of course, not the whole story of Rwanda, thankfully. In the midst of the horrible tragedy there, there are amazing stories of hope and fellowship. One of those stories took place in a little village called Nyange in Rwanda. 
in the spring of 1997, almost three years exactly after the beginning of the genocide, Hutu rebels came out of the jungles and invaded this little secondary school that you see here. They came in in the evening. The students were gathered in there having finished their evening meal and having finished their evening prayers, and they had gathered back together to study. And the rebels burst in, and they demanded that they separate Hutus on one side, Tutsis on the other, of course for the purpose of killing the Tutsis. And this small group of students stood up and said, No, you can't separate us. We are not Hutu, and we're not Tutsi. We are Rwandans. And sadly, 13 were killed that day. But they are remembered for their courage to stand together in fellowship and say, We are one. Where are our deepest allegiances? What does it really mean to say we are brothers and sisters in Christ? To say we are family? Are we a tribe? Or do we have other tribal allegiances that are more important to us? Are we a fellowship? Throughout the scriptures we hear teaching about what it means to be a fellowship. Words like we are to be put together, joined together, built together, members together, heirs together, fitted together, held together, and that one day we will be caught up together. Christian fellowship and togetherness is about belonging to and with each other in fellowship, a burden-bearing fellowship. Last week, Pastor Ray spoke about our brokenness as a family, that every one of us is broken, that we are all wounded. Who do I share that with? With whom do I unburden my soul? Who do I walk through life with? As Pastor Ray mentioned a few minutes ago, I'm a counselor. And as part of that work that I do in addition to my teaching work, I have the privilege of meeting with people who are walking through very difficult times in their life and sharing in that with them. And I want to tell you about a woman that I met a number of years ago. And I've asked her if it's okay if I tell her story. And she said, yes, it's fine. But to respect her and protect her identity, I won't use her real name. I'll just call her Karen. I met Karen, as I said, a number of years ago. She came to meet with me because she was struggling in her life with the grief of the loss of her mother. Her mother had died. And that's hard for any of us. But for Karen, it was especially complicated because, you see, Karen was blind. And for all of her life, her mother had cared for her and, in essence, served as her sight. And so Karen was not just grieving the loss of her mother. She was grieving the loss of her mobility and her access in life. And also there was perhaps a little bit of dependency that her mother had fostered in her. So she was working through her fear of going out in life and her feelings toward her mother for that. And so there was a lot of complicated stuff in there. So we started to meet together and got to know each other and began to care about each other as we would meet weekly and talk. And one particular day, we were sitting and talking with each other. I had met her, and we walked down the hallway to the office where we meet, and we had sat down, and she was talking about what was going on in her life right now. But I noticed that as she was talking, she was rubbing her eyes really hard. You know, when you get something in your eye and it really irritates your eye and you just rub and rub and rub. And so she was rubbing, and as she kept rubbing, I could see her eyelids starting to get red and irritated. And so as any of you would, I said, you know, Karen, are you okay? Is there anything that you need? And she said, no, I'm fine. So we kept talking, and she kept rubbing. And she rubbed and she rubbed, and I, I felt so bad for her. I said, Karen, isn't there anything that we can do? And she said, no, no, I'm fine. Then she paused for a moment, and she thought, and she said, well, if I was at home, I would just take them out and rinse them off. And I paused about like I did just now. And she noticed that I paused, and she said, didn't I tell you they're not real? And I said, no, no, you didn't. She said, yeah, I was born without eyes. 
these are glass eyes. They're prosthetic eyes. And I said, oh. And so I offered, well, right across the hall, there's a restroom. You know, we can go over there. I'll take you over there if you want to rinse them off. And she said, no, 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 no. I don't want to take away from any of our time together. So I said, okay. And so we kept talking, and she kept rubbing. And I just, you know, I felt so bad for her. I finally said, Karen, you just do whatever you need to to feel better. And she said, okay, thank you. And she kept talking. And a few minutes into our conversation, then she reached up, and she popped one of them out, and she popped the other one out. She kind of rubbed her eye sockets. And she sat there talking to me holding her eyes. And then suddenly she got this big grin on her face. And I said, Karen, what are you grinning about? And she said, well, I I can't get over the urge to hand them to you. So I said, okay. So I reached out and I found her hand and she put them in my hand and they were just absolutely beautiful. You know, I sort of expected, have you ever seen Pirates of the Caribbean, you know, the wooden, I thought they'd be big and round like that, but they weren't. They were delicate and concave and exactly shaped to her eye sockets. They were blue And they actually had blood vessels painted in them. As I sat and looked at them, she said, you know, I have two pair. And I said, oh, you do? She said, I've got brown ones and blue ones. So I'm thinking, how do you keep them? And she said, well, I keep one one set in one place and one set in another place. And I said, oh. And so as I'm sitting there looking at them, I looked up, and she was just grinning from ear to ear. You know, one of those smiles that just sort of takes over somebody's whole face. And so I said, Karen, what are you smiling about now? And she said, well, you know, I've never had a conversation with someone holding my eyes before. And I said, well, it's a first for me too. (laughs) But, you know, something in our relationship changed drastically that day. Because as I had come to find out a little bit later, her mother had always told her, don't ever let anyone see you without your eyes because they'll reject you. And so she lived in fear of anyone ever seeing her as she truly was. And on that day, it was nothing special that I did. She had the courage to say, will you see me? You know, I love in the movie Avatar, if you've seen the movie Avatar, the greeting that people give each other. In Avatar, you know that one? I see you. That's what she said. She said, is it okay? Will you see me? The grace of Christian fellowship is about belonging together with a family of believers who know one another really know one another and love each other anyway. The closest experience I know in my life to the grace of God is the love of my wife, Sydney. Because she knows me. I mean, she really knows me, perhaps even better than I know myself. And she still wants to be with me. Well, most days. No. <laughs> she, she really knows me and she loves me anyway. And that's just mind-boggling to me. I think that's a hunger that's at the depth of every human being. This longing that we have to be known, really known, and loved anyway. And it breeds a fear that I think on some level we all feel at one time or another. The fear that if you knew me, if you really knew me, then you would reject me, or you would leave me, or you would laugh at me, or whatever it may be. That's the amazing promise of God's love and His grace. He knows us, truly knows us, Therefore, we are to love each other with the love of Christ. Henry Nouwen is one of my favorite authors. I encourage you to read all his books. He's written about 40 books. But in one of his books, The Wounded Healer, he writes, True community arises where the sharing of pain takes place. Christian fellowship is a place where I'm supposed to be able to say, I'm home. I know my brothers and sisters, and they know me. 
It's a place where I'm safe to share my burdens. And it's a place where I have the opportunity to carry the burdens of others. And so I learned that this is where genuine comfort is. This is the place where the rest for my soul really exists. This is my happy place, to be in genuine Christian community and fellowship, a burden-bearing fellowship. Bonhoeffer wrote, We have one another only through Christ, but through Christ we do have one another, holy and for all eternity. So what does this mean for us at Parkview? I think of two things that immediately come to my mind. One is that if Christian fellowship is going to be an experience of genuine community, as we've talked about it, and togetherness, then we've got to find a way to live our lives together daily. Coming here, worshiping together on Sunday morning is so important, but it's not enough. Last week, Kim spoke about life groups, and Ray just spoke about them a few minutes ago as well. It's an opportunity to be a part of koinonia, the kind of koinonia we're talking about. The church began as gatherings of people meeting in homes, sharing their lives together. And if we're willing to participate in the kind of fellowship that the scriptures talk about, becoming a part of a life group is a really good place to start. And secondly, I think of the communion that we're about to share together. Ultimately, Christian fellowship is about communion with God and with one another. The Apostle John wrote in his letter, Our koinonia is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ, our fellowship. And so we gather around this table to celebrate this koinonia, to remember his great love for us, to testify to our fellowship with one another and with the Lord. We come together to experience the grace of God poured out through Jesus Christ and made real to us through the love that we share with one another. As Jesus said in the prayer we mentioned, our fellowship testifies to the world that he is Lord and that we are together in him. As he ate with his disciples that same night, he told them, when you gather together, he said, take this bread and remember who I am, he said, and also remember who you are to be. This is the symbol of our fellowship with each other. Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians, is not the cup of thanksgiving for which we give thanks, a koinonia, he uses that word, a fellowship in the blood of Jesus Christ. And is not the bread that we break, a koinonia, in the body of Christ. Because there is one loaf, we who are many are one body. So as we come together around this Lord's table, I invite you to make a commitment that we will be a koinonia, a burden-bearing fellowship. Let's pray together. Gracious Father, we are overwhelmed by your love and your grace. You know us, Father, and yet you love us. And in that, you give us the freedom and the grace to know one another and love each other. And so we gather around this table, Father, and we take of this bread and we take of this cup in testimony to who you are and in testimony to who we want to be, a fellowship in your name. In Jesus Christ, amen.